And after the meeting, the company that had sponsored it, they're a, a machine learning firm in Maryland called Miner and Kosh. At the time, they were called Miner and Kosh. Their salesperson came up to me. He's like, yo, that's an amazing project. We'd love to help. And I'm like, no offense, Chris, but like, I'm not really in your uh, wheelhouse because I don't have any money. And, you know, you guys are really expensive. And so he was like, come and have lunch with us and show the team your product. So I went and had lunch with them and they had like, all these data scientists at the table and we were playing with the bot on the big screen and they were freaking going crazy for it. They loved it. So then their salesperson and their team were like, how can we make this work? We'll do whatever it takes. Like, and I just like, I had the team in Spain and now I had a data scientist that was a master in NLP and we decided to cook up this pilot and like offer this free version of it to all these lawyers and just go for it. going on, everybody? GMI Rocket Show, episode 14 today. I'm your host, Roman Zelotrenko. I'm an immigration lawyer, the CEO and co-founder of Laborless, an immigration tech startup, and the founder of GMI Rocket, which is bringing you the show you're watching today. I'm super, super excited. Episode 14, which is crazy to me, 14 amazing conversations. Today, I have on the show a fellow immigration lawyer and fellow immigration tech startup, uh, founder Jared Jascott, who is an immigration lawyer based out of Maryland. Um, he's got a super incredible story. He's building really, really, really cool tech that I'm very excited about. It's nothing like we've ever had or seen on my show. So I'm really excited to chat with Jared today. And Jared, thank you so much for joining. And I'm super pumped to uh, discuss everything, a lot of things with you today. So appreciate you being here. So, so Jared, I, you know, I'm particularly, you know, there's there's so much in immigration tech that's really exciting and interesting um, happening from the case management side to compliance side, um, all that kind of stuff. You're building something totally different. You're building a chatbot, um, a really sophisticated AI-powered chatbot that is, you know, maybe going to be doing even more uh, than what chatbots are doing today, which is really exciting. And we're going to get to it. But you have a fascinating story of how you went from being a lawyer uh, to becoming a startup founder. I mean, it's really, it feels like a total 180. And um, I'm really excited to, to dive into that. Before you started law school, the story goes, you served in the Peace Corps. What got you into the Peace Corps? Where did you, where did you go to college? What was your life like before you became a lawyer? Well, um, you know, I just, I did apply to law school actually when I was an undergrad, but I really was, my heart wasn't in it. Like, I mean, like everybody else, I'd already been in school for 17 years straight. And I was just like, I actually, even in college, I kind of wanted to quit school. And my parents were like, just finish, get that bachelor's degree, and then you can do whatever you want. And so I was on an internship in DC, the Washington, Mexico Chamber of Commerce. And at the time, I was a Republican, dirty little secret. And um, <laughs> a friend of mine that was in this the same internship program said, hey, I'm going to this thing for Peace Corps. Some past volunteers are going to talk about their experiences. Why don't you come along? And I didn't have anything to do. And I went and I was like, whoa, this is pretty rad. I heard their stories. It sounded like a really good adventure. You know, Peace Corps has like some, some really good marketing. And it kind of swept me up into it. And then at the end, they, you know, they had a really smooth, like, call to action. No friction. My favorite. They were like, just fill out the application. Like, as soon as you guys get back to your house, you know, you can have an interview with us. Like, there's no pressure. But, like, why don't you just, like, see if, like, we would accept you and see what's up. And that got me so excited. So I, yeah, I did it. It was sort of 
kind of a bolt from the blue, I guess. And so you were, what were you studying in undergrad at the time? Philosophy. Super helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the science of learning, if you will. And, and I said, you know, I, I studied uh, philosophy in undergraduate as well as, as along with economics. So I kind of went, you know, um, practical quote unquote and impractical as well. Um, so you, did you speak Spanish at the time? Oh yeah, I had taken classes in undergrad, um, mm-hmm. for sure. But it was it was my Spanish was was okay. Like I knew a lot of the uh, grammatical elements, but I I really struggled to understand and speak quickly. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And so so you you were in undergrad. You applied for. You had some thoughts about maybe going to law school, but you know, understandably, like wanted to take a break from school as well. It sounds like you kind of weren't exactly sure what you. Were, like it wasn't like I'm going to graduate, I'll be a teacher, or I'm going to be an engineer, or I'm going to be, you know, something. You were kind of figuring it out. The Peace Corps opportunity came up, and it just sounded awesome, which it absolutely is. And so you, you know, applied, you got in, um, and you went down to El Salvador, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and- I, my my big requirements to them were that I wanted to do farming, and I wanted to be in a Spanish speaking country, and they, you know. They, I was lucky enough that they gave me both. So what was the experience like? Because I, I actually, you know, I have one friend who's been, who spent a few years in Costa Rica. What was your experience like in, in El Salvador? So, you know, it was, it was really hard. Honestly, that was probably the best way to describe it. Um, I was sent to a very small community in San Miguel. It was a farming co-op and they, um, they had really, I don't know if you know much about the history of El Salvador, but, you know, during the civil war, there was basically El Salvador had been broken up um, pre-Civil War, you know, through the 1970s up to 1980 uh, in these haciendas, which were effectively, you know, sort of like plantations where the people, they were paid, but like sometimes paid in like company bucks. I mean, it was, it was approaching slavery, let's say. And so the, the, the right wing government in El Salvador in an attempt to sort of quell the leftist uprising broke all those haciendas up, paid the hell out of all the guys that owned them, and they gave them to the people that worked there in cooperative fashion. And so all those, all those haciendas became co-ops. And the hacienda that I was sent to had been a co-op, you know, at that point for 22 years. They were, you know, they needed to diversify their crops. They weren't doing too well. The crop that they were farming, they were heavily dependent on pesticides. Their health wasn't good, and so I was sent there to help them learn organic farming techniques and crop diversification. Of course, I mean, I had a philosophy degree, right? And I was talking to these people who were professional farmers who were, like, farming the same land as their, like, grandpa's grandpa had farmed. So, you know, it was sort of, like, ridiculous to think that I was going to be able to make an impact. I was, like, a little more like a, you know, sort of like a town mascot, I would say, than a helper. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, did you know any, did you have knowledge about farming practices at all? Or, or no. what practically were you kind of doing? I'm sure you picked stuff up along the way, but what were you practically kind of doing down there? Yeah. So um, Peace Corps volunteers are assigned to like a local counterpart. And so mine was a member of the Ministry of Agriculture. And um, that person and I would, you know, we would actually do like mostly like clinics in the afternoon. Like we would do like a 10 week thing. Like we bought like a hundred chickens and we had a bunch of women that came and like all of us together, like took care of the chickens. And the idea was that it would be able, that chicken project would like give them a way to have like a side hustle in their yard, you know, when they were cleaning clothes and like making tortillas and stuff. And so that they could slowly like build up 
their bankroll with these with this chicken project. We did we did some projects around like how to inject cattle, like better health for your cattle. You know, a lot of organic farming. I was there's a lot of runoff in El Salvador, and you know, it was like a lot of different techniques for try to soil retention. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty deep ag stuff. That's fascinating. I um and, and so. You obviously then picked up, were, you, were there Spanish language lessons there as well for you, or you kind of just picked it up along the way? As you there and yeah, so Peace Corps, I mean, your first like three months, you're in a town with all the other people in your group, and they teach you like the, the farming skills and intensive Spanish. And you live with a family at that time. So there's a lot of really in-depth tutoring. Peace Corps super good at teaching language. And that, you know, that helped. But then like, you know, the big thing was when I was really honestly like dropped into my town and it was like, I love the chat and no one could speak English. And it was like, start talking. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. And so that was what, two years or three years that you spent down there? Yeah, it's two. Mm-hmm. Two years. And then and I met my wife there too. So that was really amazing. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so, okay. So you, you're down there, your, your Peace Corps time is kind of coming to an end. What do you say to yourself? You're, you're coming back to the States. Are you applying to law school? Did you, you know? Yeah, I applied from, I was accepted. Like, I remember I applied from law school in like an internet cafe. I had to ride the bus, like, to get like into the like internet cafe and do all my applications. And then I got my letter, like, in the mail, like, delivered to my tiny little like shack. It was pretty awesome. Wow. That's so fun. So you knew when you were finishing, finishing your, your service at Peace Corps, you were coming home, you were going to DC and you were at Georgetown, right? Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and it's kind of full circle because it sounds like you turned, turned you towards the Peace Corps from DC. So that's super. I, you fun. know, I've always been attracted to Washington DC. I think it's a really cool city. It's really beautiful. I love the like political maneuvering. It feels exciting when you're there. So, yeah, and it's beautiful architecturally too. I spent that when I was working as a lawyer. That's where I was working, living down in the DC area. So you 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 graduate or you finish Peace Corps. You come to Georgetown. You um you know, you're in law school three years. Now you're an immigration lawyer. But when you graduated, you were you became a public defender. Yeah. Did you during law school want to do something in the public space? It sounds like, like, how did that sort of come about? Because, you know, it, it sounds in retrospect makes all the sense in the world in terms of you going from being a public defender to being an immigration lawyer. But, you know, you could have gone into corporate law. You know, there's so many avenues um, what made you, what kind of drew you towards being a public defender? Yeah, I actually, you know, I kind of like, um, my, my parents have a lot of money. I was raised pretty wealthy and I actually kind of like wanted to be wealthy. And so I thought like law school would be a route for me to, to do that. But then I got there and I kind of like realized like how much I hated big law and like sort of the classmates that were angling towards that and like understanding the, in the like dynamics of what big law looked like. You know, no one, I'm like the first lawyer in my family, not like I am the first lawyer in my family. And so I didn't really actually know what lawyers do or how it all worked until I got to law school, sort of naive as that sounds. And so, you know, once I was there, I was like, oh, this corporate route that I was thinking about isn't all that it's cracked up to be. But I was actually in a special section at Georgetown called Section 3 that was dedicated to sort of like disrupting the law on behalf of less represented people. And they were already starting to show me and my classmates the seams of like where the law is really actually like not fair and the rigged deck for rich people. And sort of they were kind of teaching us this stuff so that we could begin to pick away at those seams. So I was I was listening to that. And and similar to my Peace Corps thing, a friend dragged me along to a um, public defender's talk for like the summer jobs. And I went 
And the public defenders were amazing. They just seemed like pirates, so much cooler than the rest of the lawyers that I had met. And so I was like, wow, same deal. The public defender made a really good pitch. Come meet with us, see if you would be interested. I went and met with her and I volunteered that first year summer as, at the public defender's office in Alexandria. And it was like, wow, this is amazing. So exciting. Wow. And, and so, and, and that's where you ended up working. Is that right? In that public defender's office? No. So after graduating, actually, um, you know, I could have never gotten into PDS, the DC public defender, far too elite. My grades weren't good enough. And most of the time they accept people from better schools than Georgetown. So, um, and out of clerkships and stuff. And my grades at Georgetown weren't that good. So I, um, my wife and I really, we decided to move to Baltimore. She went to Johns Hopkins. And so I became a public defender here in Baltimore, which is exciting because I mean, like Baltimore, I mean, like, you know, the wire, it's like a, probably the most corrupt police force in America. Like it was, you know, really exciting stuff. And you, you did that for seven years, six, seven years that you were a public defender? I was a public defender for five years and then I was a private criminal defense attorney for three. Got it. And um, yeah, I mean, now we can have a whole episode about your experience as a, a public defender and doing criminal law down in, uh, in Baltimore. Um, now, this is a big inflection point because you then started to move into the immigration law space. So you're a public defender, then you're a private practice defense or criminal attorney. How did you pivot into immigration? Because I think a lot of people, especially now with you know the challenges and the complexities of immigration law, are thinking like, gosh, I want to pivot away from immigration law. You know? <laughs> um, so what made you kind of pivot to immigration law? And, and yeah, how did that come about? You know, it's sort of um, when I became a private attorney, I started really beginning to like realize that I had a big competitive advantage because I spoke Spanish. And I was really like, I mean, I'm not going to say the best, but I was certainly one of the best criminal defense attorneys in Baltimore that spoke Spanish. And so it was like Baltimore, actually, the criminal defense bar is so talented. Like there's so many people that are so good at it and they actually like eat each other up on price. So it's just like all these amazing attorneys um, competing on price. And I was just like, it was it was really hard. So I started pushing this Spanish speaking aspect that I had. And then I, I even I like I made a realization when I was like looking into doing Google AdWords for my criminal defense practice that like at the time, AdWords in, for like DUIs in Spanish were like 10% of, of AdWords for DUIs in English. And I was like, oh my God, like the price of the customer DUI is the same exact thing, but like the difference in, uh, in customer acquisition cost is totally different. So I just really started pounding that. And as I started to build up a following of Latino customers, they really began to come to me with their immigration problems over and over and over again. And it was sort of one of those things where I had decided that I really love serving that community. A lot of them actually were from El Salvador, from even from the West, San Miguel. So I was really connecting with them and they really needed immigration work. And then my partner, Eva, actually took a special immigrant juvenile status case pro bono and she really liked it. And then we were both kind of like blown away by how much we liked SIJS because compared to criminal, because it was like, there's no opponent in court. It's like, you know, just like, you know, you file this petition and it works. Helping kids that didn't do anything wrong felt really good compared to like criminals, you know, and as I'd begun to go along in my practice, I was starting to represent criminals that had done like some pretty more like horrible things. So because that's sort of like the track that a criminal defense attorney takes as you go along. And, and I started to say, you know, I really love helping these kids and, and helping immigrants 
So we just started doing SIGS cases and really started to get better and better at getting that particular case type. Moved into U visas and like very, very slowly went into immigration, like one case type at a time. And, and that really, you know, started to be something that we loved. And it was also like a lot better business as a law firm because, you know, in criminal defense, first of all, the lawyer has to almost do all the work. And no one wants like the associate, you know, if they hire you to be their criminal defense attorney, you have to do it. Whereas immigration, you can actually delegate a lot of it. You can have partners that do other styles of it. So all those things just kind of led me to immigration law. And did you eventually drop the criminal criminal defense work completely or? There's only one case type that I still take, Roman, driving mm-hmm. without a license. It's my favorite crime. Uh, I probably do about 30 or 40 of them a year. I can do the consult in like 15 minutes. I show up to court, takes about 45 minutes. I love the, I just, I love traffic. I love like little fights about that. So I still have those cases. <laughs> That's so interesting. If you're in New York City, I, I imagine you would do 40 a day. Because I'm fighting, I'm fighting in traffic on a daily basis as a driver. I can't imagine doing that as an attorney. That's super fascinating uh, and, and kind of really cool. It's so organic, right? You kind of went where the wind took you. And where you realize that, A, there was a demand for your particular skill, but then B, there was this huge sort of body of work that needed to be done. And there weren't, I guess, enough immigration attorneys, particularly maybe in Baltimore, that were doing it, uh, which is really cool. So you're starting now to do immigration law and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're taking on some U visas, SIG cases, et cetera. Can you tell us about this? You know, you, you were also you were at the same time volunteering at a nonprofit, a local nonprofit. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and sort of how that inspired you eventually to get to where you are today with, with, uh, with the Tangabot? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is sort of a weird thing is that when I became a public defender, I was like right in the beginning of the Great Recession. And so there was no promotion in that office for like two and a half years. And so me and my classmates that had started, we were all stuck in the jail. Like our first office was in the jail doing bail reviews for two and a half years. So what the bail review docket looked like was like you would get this name of like 15 to 30 people, their names, and then you would go to the cell where they were all in it. And you had like five minutes to interview each one, figure out your argument and your case, and then like go into court with them and try to get them a bail. And so that made me like the master of the speed consult. And then, and so I like, it really maybe also my personality, I just like sort of fell in love with this, like initial conversation with clients, get their data, win them over, come up with a plan and like deliver it really quick. And so I started, you know, as an immigration attorney, I was like, well, I want to get more reps in consult so I can get that same rhythm that I had with bail reviews in immigration. And I also, you know, like I realized I've always known that like, if like, I'm kind of just like to break out of a funk or just. I don't know, just to make myself feel better, it feels good to do good things. And so I started volunteering on Fridays at a nonprofit that's like three blocks from my house and just doing free consults. And because I kind of had like a broad background, I actually was able to like, it ended up being a lot of immigration, but I was just kind of like free legal consults. <laughs> like, so people would sign up and they just started to, you know, it started to get more and more popular to where the signups were filling up for weeks at a time. And then people would come and wait in line and I would just talk to them for like 10 to 20 minutes. And it started to become obvious to me that like most of the time I was asking them a repeatable pattern of questions. And it's just like, I just, that 
for me, it was like that little grain of sand that I just kept turning over and over again until I could figure out how to um, like get me out of it and get them that, that little first conversation, you know, automatically. And now just to be clear, the, uh, the nonprofit is called Casa de Maryland, right? Yeah. And they're yeah, still- it's an amazing nonprofit. I mean, they just won, they've won a ton of big cases against Trump, including they just won a really nice one um, about asylum and work permit. It's a really awesome organization. Yeah. And they're, they're still, they still do work today and, and are around in, in, in Baltimore, right? Yeah, all through Maryland and Pennsylvania. It's oh. a, I mean, it's an amazing organization. They're really all about organization of immigrants from within. So, you know, they have immigrant leaders who, who are really doing it. And it's, it's just spectacular. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So, so you're, you know, there's a long line to talk to you. You're, 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 you're giving free legal advice, free legal consults, but you're noticing same questions over and over and over again. And then, of course, like you said, in your brain, you start to think, okay, what, how can I help all these people without having to sit here for the whole week and give out free, you know, free consult? So, um, so this is a big turning point because this actually led you down the path of like automating some of the questions and answers. Um, the other, I mean, the other big thing that I had going at the same time, Roman, was that I had this. This is like a time machine move here, but like at the time, DACA was like really big and popular, and everyone was doing it. But I actually was like special immigrant juvenile status. Like lots of the kids that were getting DACA were also eligible for SIJS. And DACA, you know, it's like a work permit and like it can be deleted by the president, which we later have seen in real life happen. But at the time I was like, you know, all these kids could be getting special immigrant juvenile status instead of DACA, but they just don't know. So if I can like, if I can do something to help them easily understand that, then maybe they'll all like go for SIJS instead of DACA. The other thing is that I was like, oh, there's this whole big group of kids out there that aren't in immigration court. And so they're like, oh, I'm lucky. I'm going to stay in the shadows for them too. If I could get them that, that diagnosis that they were eligible, I, I really believe that that could make a huge impact on their lives. So like I had kind of those two things going at the same time. And I mean, frankly, like I thought that that would be a really good way for me to get more cases in my law firm. If I'm like helping all these people understand their eligibility, that all of them will, that some percentage of them will then become clients. And so how did you go from that into sort of starting to build out your first, you know, bot or your first automation sequence for the Q&A? I mean, I just started like, I got, I had a friend named Steve Goodwin and I was kind of telling him about how I was trying to do it. And he told me about a product called real-time boards. It's now Miro where a person could like, just like make these online whiteboards of flowcharts. Like if this, then this, he's a computer programmer. And so he's like, look, you need, the first thing you need to do is really get your thoughts into if this, then this, like that's how computers act. So I worked on that. And then I found a chatbot program, you know, I was just, Chatbots were really popular in 2016. <laughs> it was like supposed to be the year of the chatbot. And so I found a couple of different like chatbot do-it-yourself builders and just started making them. And how did that go? I mean, they worked. People really like hated talking to them because it was like 25 questions before there was a payoff. And then so they were and they were sort of like, who is this? Like, what is this thing? Like, and they didn't trust the diagnosis. So like it went well in that, like, I could tell people were willing to talk to it a little bit, but it went poorly in that I, like, knew that it was kind of, my bot kind of sucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's challenging, right? Because you're, on the one hand, 
you're, you're sharing, you want an answer fairly quickly, but on the other hand, you're sharing information that is sensitive, that is very personal, um, that is unique to every single person. Their case is unique. And so I can imagine someone expecting maybe more than what a chatbot could deliver at the time, or knowing that it's a chatbot, not really engaging with it in a meaningful way. So there are probably some challenges, but then of course, the idea that you can go on a law firm website or something else and just ask a question and get immediate response, even if the response is all of us, the fact that you get an immediate response in and of itself is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we were seeing people doing a lot is like that, like, I mean, it's like, we're going to go, we're going there on the bot nerdery. And so like the easiest bots to build are buttons. Like, so you're like, you know, are you in Maryland? If yes, then say this. If no, then say this. That's really easy to build. But what I was seeing in my bots is like, you know, I had these big button driven experiences, but the bots, like the people were actually like, they didn't want to play that. They wanted to teach. They wanted to talk to the bot like it was a human. So they would just tell it their story. Like, hey, I came here from El Salvador in 1997. I never went to court. I pay all my taxes. I'm married. And one of my kids is a U.S. citizen. They're 23 years old. Can, can I do something? And then the bot would be like, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Do you live in Maryland? Yes or no. But like, so that was the other thing. I was like, as I was watching people actually interacting with it, like I was try- starting to like see sort of how people wanted to interact with the bots. And so having that insight, what was the next step that you took, right? Because now we're getting into sort of the beginnings of you saying, all right, I think it's time to build something, to build something yeah. that will sort of answer the questions of all these people the way in a way that makes sense, in a way that is contextual, et cetera. But of course, that's not an easy decision to make. It, it, it might be an easier decision to say, let me see what tools are out there that I can where I can build a button-based experience. It's a whole other decision to say, I'm going to go off and build something from scratch. So how did you do that, right? Because I think a lot of either immigration lawyers who have ideas would be thinking like, when can I make, when is that time going to be for me? where I can say, this idea is good enough. And sort of here are the steps that I need to take today to start moving in the direction of maybe building something of my own. I mean, unfortunately, I had already, I built, like I got a, I was really struggling, like when I decided to add like SIJS and UVISA and have it be bilingual. And then like, I saw this thing where all these people were answering the questions for themselves, but they actually weren't asking about their kid. So I had this like, First, second person, third person, like context problem. I hired a developer who helped me build like a pretty robust bot, but it was still all buttons. So like, I mean, I spent a lot of time and money on like a, another version that like was also like flawed and failed. And like, so I built my MVP myself and then I, you know, I hired someone and then it didn't work. Also like that first model, my, my business model was actually like a sort of, was called Yo Tango and Abogado, and it was a brand. And I was out there advertising that brand. And then when it would qualify people based on their location, I was going to sell leads to the lawyers. And so once I had that thing working and I went out into the market and started trying to sell the leads, like what I found is that lawyers hated leads. Like they hated Avo. Avo had really like burned up the leads, like kind of concept. Nolo, like there was a lot of companies out there that were selling these legal leads that were kind of crap. And so people thought that about that. They also like, they didn't, I think, really like the idea that like the customer talked to this brand, Yotengo Navogado, but then they suddenly like were getting flipped over to this other lawyer. Like, who is this person? And so like people hated buying legal leads. 
And so like after a year of sort of like really trying hard to sell those legal leads, I like went back to the drawing board of like what me and my business coach had kind of figured out was our plan B was white label. And like got, had begun to talk to a, um, a, a chatbot developer in Spain. And so we started to like try to spend that white label bot. And the reason I got hooked up with them actually is that I built a bot for the immigrant caravan called Lucia that would help them. Um, it would help the immigrants that were like about to do an interview of like their, 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 their fear interview. I it, like the bot was supposed to help them like get ready for it. And so that's how I met them. And then when I went to build my white label bot, they started helping me with that. That's awesome. Um, you were you already using the bot for your own firm at this point, or were you selling all of the leads that your bot was getting? Yeah. I mean, as soon as I started getting the leads, like I started getting them to myself. And I was actually at that point, like doing a lot of my marketing under that Yotango and Avogado brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really thought that it could be good. Like I also didn't really want a brand attached to my name. Like I just, I don't know, something about like, I didn't feel like I could sell it. It didn't seem as scalable. I thought that people would be like annoyed. Like they only want to talk to me. So I, I was really trying to push this Yotango and Avogado concept. But then when like, when no one would buy the leads from it, we just like, we had to do something to pivot. Mm-hmm. So, so, and I had already, my dad had loaned me some money and I already run through all of it when we pivoted. Yeah. And, and obviously, um, eventually you, the white label, you started going out to law firms, um, and offering them essentially saying, look, you label this bot is going to be your brand, your law firm name. When people are coming in and talking to it, there's no transition of, uh, branding in terms of speaking to this chat bot, setting up a call with you and then speaking to your firm. How did that go? And how, what was the reception from lawyers? It was still bad. I mean, they still like people, you know, it would be a lot of phone calls where they're like saying chat box and respond to my chat bot. Like, and they like, didn't really understand what it was. And I didn't really know who my ideal client was. And I didn't have like that big of a network and understanding of how to like sell to lawyers. So, you know, it was just like, I decided, you know, I was like, 2019 is going to be the year of like 100 no's. Like no matter what, I'm just going to keep on plowing, getting no's and just keep trying over and over again. And I started to like, actually though, make some traction. Like I started to get some people that were willing to sign up. Some of them churned, but like I had some customers that were interested in trying it. And some of them were actually getting some good results in their firms. And that started to like show me what kind of people would say yes to my product, who I should be looking for, what my product needed to be for them. And sort of, you know, that was like that big learning year, 2019. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I want to dive into that a little bit more because, you know, that learning is really important. Number one, you, you, you started to find, you know, this learning experience of starting to find who your client is, how to approach them and how to sell to them. And then of course, it's not just about selling. It's all about, it's also about, how value, how you can bring value to that, to that law firm, to that client. Um, what, who were some of those clients that were saying yes, initially, I guess, you know, did you start to find um, links between them? Was there sort of this ideal client profile that you were seeing kind of, how did that work? Cause I think, you know, it knows working through knows is really important, but of course you do need a yes eventually right? because that's where like business starts to grow and your technology starts to grow and scale. So what were some of those first yeses that people can sort of visualize? I mean, I think that like one of the things that has been really a key for me is sort of like 
A lot of my best leads have come through the idea of um, me showing my product off, like basically just showing like a demo conversation with the bot and or like some like piece of data. And then that like resonating with someone and then them reaching out to me in one way or another, or like giving me some positive feedback about that. And then me reaching out to them. Those are like, that's, that's a good sign for me. Like if I'm going outbound cold, it almost never works. Mm-hmm. It, it could be sort of like that. If like now that I know sort of who my target customer is, which is the ideal customer for me is someone who already has a ton of traffic. They're already doing Facebook Live. They already have social media. They already understand that content creation is the key. If, if, if those things are in place, then I have a really good chance of winning. If none of those things are in place, then, then I need someone that at least is really motivated to grow and try new things. But sort of like in that, in 2019, one of the ways that I was willing to do it that I'm not willing to anymore is like, I knew that my, if my bot isn't having conversations, it's bringing no value to the law firm. And so like one of the ways that I've gotten a lot of conversations into my bot in my own firm is through Facebook ads. And so in 2019, one of the things that I would do if I got a customer that was motivated is I would run their ads for them. And so like I would prove the value of the bot for them um, by, by doing their ads. I, you know, I, and I kind of learned also like that, like if they were doing their own ads, it wouldn't work as well because they wouldn't be as good at it as I was. And so that was one of the things that I really did that started to help me a lot was run ads for people that didn't have a lot of traffic. Got it. We did have a question just to kind of go back from Michael Smith. Do you think, Jared, your time in the Peace Corps helped you um, lean into helping people with immigration law questions? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I wouldn't... Like the reason that I do immigration law is that I love Central Americans, like, and they're pretty much all my clients. And I actually, I actually kind of hate immigration law as a practice, just to put all my cards on the table. Like, I never wanted to be an immigration attorney, and I never would have been had I not wanted to serve this particular group of people. And immigration is their biggest need. I think you know, immigration law compared to criminal law is like brutal. Like, there's, you know, there's all these regulations. Like, you can't have a regulation in criminal law. You have to have a a law, you know, you can't like. There's actually like case law in immigrate in 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 immigration. Like the case law is like very squishy. Um, the AG can just go on in and write whatever they want as an opinion. Um, there's no juries. There's really no constitutional rights. Like immigration law is is so hard and. <laughs> It's also like totally illogical, like criminal law. There's like these principles that it flows from, sort of like philosophy. But immigration is a patchwork. Like Congress did this. This new president comes in. He hates immigrants. He loves immigrants, you know? And it's just it's like I would never be doing immigration law if I hadn't gone to Peace Corps. It's a long answer, but yes. That's, that's, such, a fascinating, that's such a fascinating uh, reality, right? Because here you are automating it. But I suppose you're, you're making it easier for people. Ron Madden asked, what do you think about YouTube ads? I think they're good. I think they're maybe um, the key is really like with Facebook or YouTube is to me is just like all about like trying to focus on value and that like customer path. I think YouTube ads can win, but you have to convert them. Like I think that what YouTube to WhatsApp is a nice handoff. YouTube to Facebook Messenger maybe not as much. But yeah, I think that YouTube ads could work. I would love to test them. I mean, if Ron wants to throw some money at some YouTube ads with the funnel and a little marker, we'll be—I'll be happy to, happy to go for it. 
I think Ron and I, like I'll, I'll say this on Ron's behalf without a little waiver of privacy, because there's no attorney client privilege in marketing um, is that, you know, like for Ron, I think a lot of other attorneys that I've dealt with, like advertising is really scary because like um, attorneys aren't used to just like throwing money away on lessons. So like if Ron and I were going to go for a YouTube ad campaign, I'll be like, okay, like we're going to need to spend 1500 bucks out of the gate just to figure out like what's going on with these YouTube ads. Like, and most lawyers that I meet with and deal with are pretty conservative when it comes to just throwing money away at like figuring out different ad channels. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And I think a lot of people want answers before they really start to do something. But the reality with some of these things is there is no guarantee. It depends on who your target audience is. It depends who's on in what particular channel and whether they're not they're willing to buy through that channel or they're just consuming content. Um, there's a, a a nice comment here from Mariela Benitez. Immigration is a patchwork. Truer words have never been spoken. Um, I think we can we can see that. Uh, we can definitely see that now. Ron says, "You know me too well." <laughs> so. To to kind of go from you you you're you're starting to build a a chat box using a team you leverage this team in Spain you started to white label you're you're you've gone through some no's you've gotten a couple of yeses in terms of working with immigration uh, lawyers and and building the bot for them did Yo Tango Bot come from the previous name of Yo Tango and Abogado yeah yeah uh, <laughs> just I mean, chopped off the un abogado i mean the other thing i liked about it is that it's like kind of like um i thought in the version of white label like that it's sort of like a personal expression of like i've got a bot like because i want all my customers to really see their boss as like theirs i want them to have ownership over them and to really control them and sort of like make them you know express their law firm so i like the idea of brand names and marketing messages that are actually an expression from the client. Like that's a big sort of part of all my messaging that I try to do. And so that kind of, I like that. Um, you know, I had also heard that like tech brands that have a ton of O's in them really do well. Hmm. Um, so, you know, okay. I hadn't heard all that, those that, things together. That's gotta be, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, so, where where is your Tango Bot now? Uh, because you know you you've come a long way. You, you recently raised a round of venture capital, which is really exciting. Congratulations on that. Um, where you know how did you get from starting to work with this company? You know, you said you borrowed some money from your dad that you ran through that. I mean, you were really kind of really needing to need, needing to get to the next step. How did you get from there to where you are today? And sort of. Talk a little bit about the technology that you've leveraged, because I think that's something that is really exciting and we should kind of dive into. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this, I kind of mentioned earlier that, you know, what users really want to do is they want to talk to a chat bot in narrative form, like the same way that they talk to, you know, that you and I text each other on the phone, Roman, or on Slack is like a nice exchange of information. You know, you give me some information and then you give me a prompt. And then I like take in what you give me and I respond in a logical fashion. And you know, that technology is really in its infancy, but it's also just blowing up right now. And it's called natural language processing, meaning that you know, you take this unstructured data, people's sentences and words, and you turn them into something symbolic that a computer can understand, feed it at a decision tree or some other algorithm that has an output. 
and then you get something back. So I knew for a long time that I really like natural language processing was where I needed to be. And the team I was working with in Spain and I were, you know, we were really working hard with this model in Dialogflow, Google's product, to try to get our white label bot like up into like a natural language processing model. And so, and then what ended up happening is I was at a meetup in um, February and it was like an AI, Marylanders like that, like are interested in AI. It was a talk. And um, before the, like, the talk began, the, the MC of it was like, okay, anybody here who has like an opportunity or wants to talk about stuff can like get up and give their pitch to the group. And so I stood up and I was like, yeah, I have this chatbot company. I really need natural language processing help, like a data scientist. I'm looking for teammates. Um, I don't have any money, uh, but my project is really cool. It helps immigrants. We already are getting like a fair amount of data and conversations. So, you know, this is some really interesting applications. And after the meeting, the, the company that had sponsored it, they're a, a machine learning firm in Maryland called Miner and Kosh. At the time, they were called Miner and Kosh. They, their salesperson came up to me. He's like, yo, that's an amazing project. We'd love to help. And I'm like, no offense, Chris, but like, I'm not really in your uh, wheelhouse because I don't have any money. And, you know, you guys are really expensive. And so he was like, come and have lunch with us and show the team your product. Just like, we'll buy you lunch, like whatever. Maybe you'll just get a little, you know, feedback. So I went and had lunch with them and they had like all these data scientists at the table and we were playing with the bot on the big screen and they were freaking going crazy for it. They loved it. And then, so then their salesperson and their team were like, how can we make this work? We'll do whatever it takes. Like they ended up, you know, giving me ridiculous terms. Like they were charging me like 40% of their usual rate. They let me get like 90 days, like to pay the bill. So it's like after the month, so it would be 120 days. And I just like, I had the team in Spain and now I had a data scientist that was a master in NLP. And we decided to cook up this pilot and like offer this free version of it to all these lawyers and just go for it. Wow. That's such a crazy story. It's so cool to see a big company value a good idea, even when on its face as a business, you know, opportunity, maybe it's not the most lucrative thing right away. Honestly, like that, that makes me feel good because then... Because to your point, you know, you would probably would never even approach them and say, hey, can you give me a deal because I'm working on this thing and, you know, it's a demographic, but I don't really have the funding right now. Um, so I, it's, it's actually really inspiring to hear that companies will, and that these folks who are building this stuff, you know, these, these brilliant kind of NLP um, scientists care, right? Like, yeah. They're not just, they're not in it just for the money, so to speak. I mean, they are, of course, but this, something tickled their fancy where they were like, wow, this is cool. This is something that we know we can do and that we would probably feel good about. So that, that's, that's super exciting. And when was yeah. that? I mean, they started, Brian, the, the researcher, um, started working for me in the end of March. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things they said to your to just add a little to the like giving them credit is that like there's this like it, it may not be like to the people watching that apparent, but like in a lot of in some corners, like there there's all these companies like Microsoft and Google who are like, oh, AI for good, this is gonna democratize the world, it's gonna be these tools that help everyone. But the truth is that like most of the time it's just like rich people, like you know, stock traders that are using machine learning and like actually like 
none of it is coming down to like getting down to people that really like need it. It's sort of actually like causing a, a further gap really as the AI tools begin to come in. So they were really interested in a project that could help people. They were really on board with helping immigrants. Like that was a big part of it for them. That's really cool. That's kind of, and then they ended up getting bought like in May as we're going on. They're like, Hey Jared, like we just got bought by Atos, this giant French conglomerate. And I was like, well, that's the end of our relationship, but they, they didn't stop. Like they, they kept it going and they, they still work with them. Wow. That's really exciting. Um, that's super cool. Uh, and so that was in March and now we're in October. So yeah. what's been going on since then? So, I mean, the pilot, you know, I'll, I'll admit that, like, I have this, like, I don't, I don't know. Do you know much about computational law, Roman? No. So, like, I'm kind of obsessed with, like, computational law, but I don't talk about it much because, like, I think that it glazes everyone's eyes over. So prepare to be glazed. Um the idea is really that like there are ways that we can begin to reduce the law itself into computer readable code. And so I had this idea with the data scientists that came on from Miner and Kosh that what we were going to do was like pull out all the elements like wife, U.S. citizen, entry type, and so forth up from their paragraphs, like com- smash them into these truth tables that I had created um, and sort of like then come back with this like better than a lawyer, like real time, any language, any platform outputs. So we started doing research on that in April and May. And it was like, no, this is going nowhere. Like we weren't even close to accurate enough to make legal conclusions. And so like we drilled a lot of like sort of empty holes in the deep NLP side. But we also launched our platform that's based on IBM Watson now that really does a nice job of responding to like more simple things like if this person gives us their phone number, we can make a conclusion that they probably want us to call them. And so we can respond accordingly um, with, you know, that's a great idea for it to have a consult and we can do a little qualification. And so, we're, you know, our bots started to get really good at like these smaller things. And um, we were able to convert a large number of the people from our pilot. And we were able to, you know, now we have 10 customers that are on our platform. And so we're like, you know, we're getting a lot of good conversations and moving the ball forward. And ultimately, the data scientists ended up inventing a different thing than the, uh, than the computational law side, a really neat video feature. So we've got that. We've gotten up on WhatsApp now, um, and we, we're about to launch basically a new thing where the lawyers can actually just like onboard themselves, build their own bots. So they don't even need like any help from us. So we've been really pushing forward fast with the product. Uh, in terms of, can, can you explain a little bit in, um, the importance of having a lot of conversations? Because I think this is where the sort of machine learning or, or the artificial intelligence starts to really you know, its strength starts to come out, right? So like, what's the importance of how, because you know, you mentioned earlier that kind of your ideal client um, in a sense is somebody who's already had, already has a lot of inbound traffic, which means that the bot, if plugged into that firm, would automatically have a lot of conversations with that traffic. So yeah. sort of why is that, why, why is that important? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, totally. I think the first cut is like, I don't know if if people haven't really, most people probably haven't like done much training, like machine learning training of of the bot or anything else. What it really looks like is like, um, say we look at like all the sentences in an Excel spreadsheet that have come into the bot. And then we're like, okay, sentence one, that guy's saying he wants a consult. 
sentence two, saying it a different way, still a consult, like, and go through and look at every sentence, all the different ways people say that they want a consult, tag them all that way, and we feed them into the computer. And that means that the computer now, when it sees someone give a sentence that's similar to those hundreds of examples that we've given it, will know that that means they want a consult, which, you know, begins to make it more human-like in its ability to comprehend what people are saying. And so the more things that we, the more examples we get of all these different things, the quicker we can train our bots to identify and respond appropriately to a much larger uh, set of, of, of sentences that people might tell it in, in our case, multiple languages. It's especially actually, it's important to note that like most of the natural language processing tools that are on the market are far more accurate in English than Spanish. And especially the Spanish that's being supported by most of them doesn't really understand the way that people actually speak Spanish from Central and, um, you know, from Mexico, Central America and South America. Also, the, what our data scientists call phone Spanish, where people use like, you know, the letter K or the letter Q instead of K, like all these little short and misspellings. And so we have to do a ton of training to really get our AI there. And the fact that we're getting so many different sentences really gives us the ability to do that. Other thing we can do with our quantity of data is experiments really quickly. Because like, you know, with our bot having 400 conversations a day, if, you know, say we want to try a different way of asking a customer if they'd like to prepay a consult. If it were just on my page that, you know, has only about somewhere in the range of 20 to 40 conversations per day, we might need three or four months to actually test that hypothesis. But because we can slide it in to all the bots across the network, you know, we can test and iterate and get better it every week. So in a sense, the more clients you have, um, unless for some reason their bot has to live separate and apart from the other bots, which, um, you know, whatever. But it, it, suppose, basically, the more clients you have, you have exponentially more conversations, which means that the bot is becoming smarter, faster. Every yeah, exactly. Your bot, bot smarter, faster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's sort of like the like essence of like um, some people call network effects. There's like this idea of like each node that gets added, like makes our, our network more, more valuable. Like the other thing that we're really building up is like a huge amount of data from past conversations. And so like, say we want to like try a new natural language processing algorithm to try to improve our performance. Instead of like going back to square one, we already have benchmarked those 50,000 conversations with IBM Watson. So we can then throw all those 50,000 conversations at the new algorithm and, and score that against Watson, giving us the ability to, to learn from the past without actually like having to test it on new clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and without having to restart and wait another six months to get those 50,000 new conversations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's super cool. So we, we, uh, we have... So we have Shiv here who says a library of variations. I mean, Shiv understands this stuff really well. Um, obviously, he understands bots, AI. Yeah. Right. It's a library that we're building up. You know, and hopefully down the road, we'll get, get, get back to that converse, that computational law dream. But like in the meantime, um, we're seeing a lot of performance upgrades for sure. 
we have a question because I, I want to dive into this. Um, I want to dive into a little bit of your experience raising money from, you know, as from a VC uh, and, and sort of what that experience was like. It's so, it's such a new kind of phenomenon um, in our space. I think immigration technology, I mean, has been around for several decades. We went from, you know, law firms getting CDs of, you know, form filling software on MS DOS or, or what have you to, going on the cloud case management. Now we're really, I think we're hitting this inflection point of maturity where we're seeing companies like yours really diving into, um, I don't want to say a niche area, but not the first thing that people think of um, in terms of where can immigration technology, uh, immigration and technology be, um, you know, work together. Uh, but of course it makes all the sense in the world. So now that we're seeing a lot more happening in the space, we're seeing a lot more investment, a lot more interest from the outside world and not just this sort of immigration bubble, which is super exciting. So I guess, you know, what what made you feel like you had to raise money? Question. That's a question that's personal to everybody. They all sort of hit a certain point. Um, but, you know, when I started my, my company, like I, I was sort of... Um, I was sort of in love with this idea of raising money. You know, it's become sensationalized. And but as I got got more and more into it, I realized, okay, well, there are there are pluses and minuses. It's not appropriate for everyone, or maybe it's appropriate at different stages. The amount you raise doesn't necessarily mean that you're already a success. And then likewise, you might not raise anything and be very successful. So, can you just talk a little bit about the experience and kind of maybe what you learned uh, along the way? And I don't know if other folks are trying to do this. Any kind of advice? I mean, I would say, you know, the fact that I like went through all the money my dad loaned me, sort of building my MVPs. What I learned from that, I would say, is that you got to like, I could have learned that lesson about those legal leads, actually, like without building anything, right? So one thing is like, can you build your pro? Can you, like, you could try to sell something to someone like before you even had it. And like, you, you probably should and like try to sell it to like 20 people and see what they say. And that's something that I didn't do. Like, I'm always someone that's really focused and interested on product. So I ended up like building a long like way on my product before I tried to sell it, which is partly why I learned those lessons the hard way in terms of time and money. In terms of like why I needed to raise money, I mean, my product is really, really hard to build. I mean, the, you know, bots don't like a, a, standard web app, you know, a web page that has a form that has some logic on it, like is a universe that you can control completely because it's on your web page. My bots live on Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp, which means that like they need to be like little boats that can speed around in the ocean that someone else is controlling. They need to be able to do it in multiple languages. They need to call to machine learning to respond appropriately. They need to be able to scale up to like a really large amount of conversations quickly. There's like, I'm between, because I'm like B to B in terms of lawyers are my customers, but my product is really B to C because it's having conversations with, with customers. I needed to have two different interfaces, the bot itself having these conversations, but then a backside interface where the lawyers could see the conversations and edit them and take them over. So that was very technically challenging. You know, and we're doing like research and data scientists and that's really with a data scientist and that's really expensive. So. For me, really, to get my product to the place where like, it could quickly scale this is really highly challenging and expensive. And that's sort of why I needed to raise money. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point, right? Because if I can abstract that a little bit, you you had things that you needed to do in order to continue to move the company forward, but they are very, very challenging and hard to do. There are some companies um, and some products and services you can build with relatively little investment, right? Um, there are some things like you can't start building a spaceship without outside investment. It would just, you know, you can do a bottle rocket, but that's about it. Right. So there's just yeah. level. So I think that's a really interesting takeaway of, you know, understanding where you are and what the technical needs are for your product and just realizing, okay, how much can you do your bootstrap or, or you know, um, versus when you really need to go out and raise some institutional um, funding. I guess one thing I'll also say though, Roman, is like you had a technical co-founder, which is like smart and humble of you. And like a tech, if you have a technical co-founder or you're a technical founder, you can take your product a lot further without that need. But, you know, I don't have those technical skills. I have to pay programmers and data scientists to help me. And so I'd say that's, you know, the other reason that sort of my back was against the wall there. Yeah, that's, um, that's a, good, a good point. Yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm the lawyer side of the equation. So like you, I understand the, the business need, but can't code it myself. Um, so you raise money from the state of uh, Maryland, right? And yeah. uh, that's, that's super exciting. And so... Going forward, sort of where what are you envisioning for you know the bot? Obviously, there's always going to be growth and there's always kind of one one thing after another, but what are you thinking of right now in terms of where maybe your tango bot is going? And then in general, sort of where this version of immigration tech, you know, this chat bot, this chat technology might go in our industry. Yeah. I mean, it's good, two good questions. I think probably I think the first one is really interesting to me is that like the nature of immigration law is that like an event can transpire that that affects hundreds of thousands or millions of people, right? Uh, we had a when DACA briefly like the window got reopened because of that federal court ruling, which by the way was Casa de Maryland as a plaintiff. Um, <laughs> they, uh, you know, we had like that went live across our networks, and like one of our lawyers, one of our superstars. Her bot qualified 1,000 kids for DACA in that first weekend. And that's because, you know, like over 100,000 people were eligible instantly and they all wanted to talk to a lawyer instantly. If immigration reform happens, like potentially up to 10 million people will, will be eligible for some sort of relief. And they're all going to want to talk to the 20,000 immigration attorneys that are out there like instantly. And so these attorneys need solutions like mine to be able to deal with all those customers in an orderly fashion, get them all into their funnel, get them qualified and serve them. So, you know, I think for me, it's really about right now trying to get into as many law firms as possible, um, as quickly as possible. And, and so um, broadly speaking, do you think that there's, are you seeing more adoption or are you seeing sort of law firms starting to understand the value of having a bot essentially speaking on their behalf. And, and to be clear, because I think a question people would have is, is the bot giving legal advice or is it, or, or like what's the con- nature of the conversation where, at least for now, where does that conversation sort of end and then the yeah. person takes over or the law firm takes over? Yeah. Yes, I'm seeing more adoption. I mean, I would say like, I think, you know, I work with Roman. He's like helps me a lot with, um, with like my messaging and what you've done Roman for me, like has really helped me immensely in terms of like helping me clarify what the bots do and their value proposition. And that has certainly helped me 
get more customers, have more people like coming to me and asking about bots and sort of associating me with bots. So I think that that has been really helpful in opening the door to it. And I think that there's also like, I think, I mean, people are starting to realize the value of AI and, and bots. And so that's sort of, you know, we're starting to reach an inflection point there. Uh, to the to like, what kind of conversation does the bot have currently? You know, a lot of it is really just like, this sort of simple questions like, how much do you charge for a consult? Can I have a consult? Or they'll also, you know, tell you a little bit, they'll tell the bot a little about their legal situation and then ask it if it can help them in any way. Um, so, you know, how does it help them? Well, right now, it, it, in some of the bots, it has one sort of legal expert system that does make a semi-legal conclusion for DACA asks them a number of questions like when they came in and then it says, you know, it does not look like you qualify for DACA. Or it's actually when it when it says no, it says, I can't tell at this time if you qualify for DACA. You need a consult if you want to ask more questions. So it doesn't tell them no. And if it if it, it says it looks like you may qualify for DACA, you should book a consult if they do. The other legal stuff, the way that we handle it actually, I think is genius. I'm super proud of my data scientist, Brian Wilkinson invented this. And here's what it does. All the Facebook videos that you upload and tag with our little tag, your Tango video. If someone says like a question, we then search your video catalog and see if you've answered that particular question. And we give them a video of the lawyer that owns that bot answering their particular legal question right there in the chat. And then we go for the close. So that's how we kind of like get around the bot giving legal advice. The lawyers give legal advice in videos. So you essentially, if, if the bot says, you know, I came from so-and-so country and I have a U.S. citizen spouse now, I'm undocumented. Is there any way I can, you know, normalize my status? And if the lawyer who's using the bot had said like, hey, are you undocumented married to a citizen? Talk to us. We can help you file for N-400, whatever. Um, you're saying that the bot will find that. And then it's like, there's a video of the lawyer answering presumably what the bot thinks is the right question. Yeah. I mean, and it's dope too. If you make the video right, like in my videos that I have, I'll be like, you're undocumented and you're married to a U.S. citizen. And you want to know, like, if you can get status, this is the video for you. And I answer the question. So it really makes it feel like I'm like working hand in hand with the bot. Just if you can kind of use like some little sort of trickery, if you will. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it, it is it is a good it's a good practice for any kind of if you have a YouTube channel or do, you know, Facebook videos or Instagram, really anything you want to speak to your customer as if it's one on one, even if you're going live talking to a thousand people. Um, yeah, you know, it's it, it makes perfect sense. Um, that's super exciting. So I think kind of, you know, to, to wrap it up here a little bit, you, um, you know, you're currently you're raising money, you're currently growing. Um, what do you see next for, you know, for the company? Where do you see the bot kind of growing in the near future? Like, what can the industry be excited about? <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that people can actually like, you know, there's a huge amount of immigrants that aren't reaching out to immigration attorneys for like a couple of reasons. Number one is they're, they're scared or they they aren't sure over and over again when I talk to customers like why aren't you willing to book a consult? They're not sure that they're not willing to invest in the case unless they know that they're going to get something out of it. If you can do a little something to bridge that gap with a bot in these videos, the number of people that are willing to book consults with you and 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 connect with your law firm and use you is just like it's so high. I mean, there's so many more people that you can get in your law firm 
and there's so many immigrants that need our help. So like, there's a huge opportunity. I mean, it's worth, you know, a ton of money. These firms can grow so fast. When people get on board, they can really see the benefits of it. And so like, I really think that we're going to see that wave of, of much more um, revenue for immigration law firms that, that jump into this. And with those network effects, I think we're going we're gonna to continue to see um, big growth there. We have a product kind of under the bot that, uh, that swaps leads between the law firms. Like if Roman only does O visas, but like he gets a, you know, asylum case into his funnel, we can flip that case over to uh, an attorney that does asylum bot to bot pass. And so that can actually be a revenue stream for people that are currently just throwing all those leads in the trash. And what I'm seeing is like the rise of the influencer lawyer. I mean, it's here, but it's growing a lot. I think that with our leads, like being able to convert leads into revenue, you're going to see more and more lawyers that just become extreme rainmakers on social media. And they sort of feed other law firms with, with their tremendous amount of conversations that they can get into with their customers. I don't know how much information you have on here, but Maria asked any insight on costs on average for the bot for the bot service, and then kind of follow up there monthly or yearly subscription, et cetera. So you know whatever you can share, maybe it's different. yeah, no, no, you know me, Roman. I don't care. I mean, like on my Facebook live show, people are like, "How much for an asylum case?" Like, I mean, they don't like. I give prices, so I mean, the the bot has. It's got a free trial, 30 days. Then it's $250 a month. For that, you get Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and all our features. So $250 a month, it's monthly, no contracts. So I think that it's a really affordable price. If you can convert you know, one or two extra customers, I think that it pays for itself. But if you already have traffic, I mean, you know what? Like, even if you already have a bot, like I guarantee that it's like a it crushes for you. I mean, you, Roman, you talked to Katia uh, about it. I mean, our bot can, like when it's cranked to the max, can convert about 30% of the people to give it their phone number. Most law firms' websites do like 1% to 2%. So like if you already have a little volume coming in, if you're already doing Facebook ads and you plug the bot in, like seeing that conversion rate, that's real. I mean, Think if you have a hundred conversations a month coming into your Facebook Messenger and you go from converting like five or ten of them to thirty, like that's an insane growth spot there. That's huge, yeah, for sure. At the very least, you can get if you get a. I mean, you know, if firms are doing paid consults, if you can at least get someone into a paid consult, you know, that's a small revenue stream as well. Um, so for for what it's worth, um, yeah, I love the paid consult. I think that the paid consult is like the key to the payback, which is you know, that that. Deploy those ads, get that payback, deploy them again. That's my favorite game. I love to, you know, I'm a big spender on Facebook ads, but I have a small bankroll and the paid consult is the key to that cycle for me. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And also like once you get to an, a large enough scale, you can't possibly give everyone a free consult because that's just a lot of time. Spent. Um, but, you know, I understand that different lawyers feel a different way about it. Um, so one last kind of, Maybe fun question. Just uh, you know, you, you talked a lot about your your time in El Salvador. Can you tell like one crazy story from working on a farm or, or just from your time in the Peace Corps? I just feel like what a wild experience to go into kind of like a small farm out in, in El Salvador. Any like crazy stories you remember that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, I mean, one time it's like I had this friend that was a mechanic named Maestro Rene, and he's like, "Come along with me. Like, we're gonna go to this guy's farm. He's pretty nuts, but like." It should be cool. 
And so like he like we were riding in this Isuzu trooper like up the mountain to the farm. And then like the sound just blew like that he like gave me a concussion. And I turned around and the dude had a 357 Magnum and he was shooting at birds from within the car. But like that's just the like beginning to this. So like I'm like, what the fuck? Stop that, dude. Like you're it's so loud. You know, also it's crazy, but like so we're we're going along and um He's like, hey, or, you know, I was like, this is kind of boring because they're working on the truck. I was like kind of wandering around. And the guy was like, hey, like, try to ride that mule over there. Like, it's cool. It likes people to ride it. And so, like, I, you know, I went up to it, like, and I was like saddling it up. And it like reared up on its front legs and threw both like, and I like kind of did like a little matrix thing. And it wasn't that cool, I'm sure. It was like it's like your grandma bending over, but you know, it felt like Matrix in my mind. But the thing kicked me in the leg. Oh my god, it hurt so. I mean, it was like purple. And the dude was laughing. He was like, "That mule won't let anyone ride it. It's kicked so many people." <laughs> he screwed with you. You messed. Yeah. I told him that I was going to take the gun out of his holster and shoot his mule. And he freaking went crazy on me. And then we ended up like having to leave, like not fixing the tractor or anything. Wow. Yeah. I was pretty dumb at that age. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. Someone said to me, let's go to a farm with this crazy guy. I would probably say, no, thanks. I'm good. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. But hey, you probably learned how to say mule, holster, magnum, and a bunch of other words in Spanish that day. oh man yeah no i mean it's like you know i look back at things like that and i just think like how lucky i am honestly that like there's a lot of things that happened to me in el salvador that if they had gone like a little bit different i wouldn't be here today i wouldn't have my health like i'm very lucky in a lot of ways and i you know i knew a lot of people in el salvador that had like my best friend died there my host dad died like while i was there like there's a lot of suffering and really like tough stuff that happens there that doesn't happen in the u.s and I got really lucky that like the people of El Salvador took really good care of me and a lot of things like that mule thing, like ended up being a funny story instead of me like dying. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so true. Um, and I guess it's a good, it's a good lesson to kind of leave with and kind of being, uh, being thankful for what we have and, and sort of where, and then also making the best of it too. Well, Thank you so much, Jared. This was super awesome. Uh, appreciate you sharing. Really excited for for you, for Yotangobot, for the industry in general. Um, again, I was excited to have this conversation to kind of lean into yet another avenue and direction that immigration technology is going in. And it's super, I'm super pumped for it. Hopefully more artificial intelligence, more sort of ancillary, but really central tech that is going to be built into law firms so that their quote unquote tech stacks can become more and more advanced. And really, they can leverage their time and, and their expertise in a way that is useful <laughs> of their of their of their knowledge, rather than just like paperwork, which we all know immigration has a ton of. So, appreciate everything you've done, and uh, thank you, thank you for joining today. Yeah, Roman. I mean, you know, you're like you've taught me so much in the short time that I've been working with you. Uh, I love this show. I think it's so fun. You're doing it. It's really good for the industry. And you know, I just yeah, you've really you really helped me so much. I feel really grateful to be on your show and to know you and to get to work with you. So thanks a ton. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Thank you.